down women with diluted dreams of hope for joy has been washed down the stream. I'm Robin Hawkins, and you're listening to Watered Down Women. Hoping to be free, found a new home in the cemetery. If there were no calendars and no clocks, how would you mark time? How would you even know your age? Trees form annual rings within their trunks, which can easily be counted when the tree falls. And this method provides a pretty accurate determination of the dead tree's age. However, it's a little more difficult to determine the age of a living tree. A complicated mathematical formula, which involves measuring the circumference diameter and radius of the tree, then dividing and deducting those numbers, and then different variables must be considered in determining a live tree's age. And even with all of those configurations, you still only get a rough estimation of its actual age. In human beings, there's a natural progression that indicates a general estimate of a person's age. For example, we can identify the infancy stage based on the person's extremely small size, inability to care for himself, and the rapid rate of growth during this period. Likewise, characteristics such as poor fine motor and vocabulary skills would indicate a person being the age of a toddler, and traits such as acne, irritability, and aloofness might indicate someone being in his or her teenage years. These are all accurate and reliable indicators, right? Maybe, but maybe not. Considering that people who have suffered traumatic brain or spinal cord injuries or someone with dementia or Alzheimer's disease may exhibit some of these very same characteristics, we realize that these indicators might provide clues to determining age, but they aren't necessarily reliable facts. Obviously, we need to have a more accurate method of marking time. Here's a song from the 1996 Broadway musical Rent entitled Seasons of Love. And it states that there are 525,600 minutes in a year. But it asks, how do you measure a year? The lyrics go on to suggest that we measure a year in daylights, in sunsets, in midnights, in cups of coffee, in inches, in miles, in laughter, and in strife. But ultimately, the song suggests we measure a year by remembering love. Every day for the past 17,000 
655 days, based on the airing of this podcast, Betty Dyer's family has only been able to measure her life and memories they hold in their minds and the love for her that they hold in their hearts. Most of us can't even fathom the thought of hanging a missing person poster of anyone, let alone of our mother or of our daughter or our sister. But that's exactly what the Dyer family did. In our last episode, we learned that Betty left her home in the early morning hours of December 31, 1972, and headed for a local laundromat. After hours passed and she still hadn't returned home, Betty's family members began calling one another, along with her neighbors and friends, to find out if any of them had recently seen or talked to her. As the day passed, Betty's boyfriend, Plummer Underwood, returned to the home he shared with Betty and her two youngest children, and he learned that she was still not home from the laundromat. Plummer called Betty's daughter, Pam, and asked if there was any word from her mom. When she told him that no one had heard anything, he told her that he would drive to the laundromat to see what was going on. When he arrived there, he discovered her unlocked car with three baskets of clean laundry placed in the back seat. He called Pam and told her about the car, so she met him at the laundromat and used his spare set of keys to drive the car back to Betty's residence. Now, in today's world filled with TV crime shows, true crime podcasts, and countless documentaries dealing with sensationalized murders of famous people or the notorious villains who committed the crimes, nearly everyone knows the do's and don'ts about approaching a crime scene. Campbellsville University offers an online infographic that outlines the seven steps of crime scene investigations. The first step is to identify the scene's dimensions, which entails locating the focal point of the scene and establishing a perimeter large enough to contain relevant evidence. Next is the need to establish the scene's security, and this involves placing tape around its perimeter. Thirdly, authorities create a plan to determine what type of crime took place, if additional resources are necessary, and if there are any threats to the integrity of the evidence, such as weather or traffic. The fourth action taken is to take a primary survey of what could be considered as evidence and photograph those items. Step five is to document and process all of the evidence. Next is to conduct a secondary survey to catch anything the first survey might have missed. 
And the last step in the process is to record and preserve evidence by bagging and labeling all of the materials. Although this information is vital to police authorities and to students of the profession, and is drilled into the head of every rookie TV cop, it wasn't something that an everyday citizen would have been familiar with in the early 1970s. So when Betty's boyfriend and daughter drove her car home from the laundromat, they weren't worried about this action preventing law enforcement officers from conducting a thorough investigation. Instead of being filled with laughter, celebration, and exorbitant amounts of food, New Year's Eve day, 1972, for the Dyer family, ticked by slowly, and the new year arrived with still no word from Betty. About an hour after 1973 was officially ushered in, her family members agreed that she hadn't just left to celebrate with a friend, nor had she simply lost track of time. So they contacted the Mansfield Police Department. The officers arrived at the home of Betty's daughter, Pam, around 1.30 in the morning. After taking her statement, they left her residence and drove to the house of Betty and Plummer, and they questioned him about the type of person Betty was. He informed them that she used to have a drinking problem, but hadn't had a drink in several months. He denied that Betty had been depressed or self-medicating and reported that the two of them had a great relationship and got along very well. Plummer showed them Betty's purse, which contained her identification, checkbook, and money, and stated that she had only taken with her enough change to wash and dry that day's laundry. They questioned him about her having friends or relationships with anyone near the laundromat, and he denied that she did. After interviewing Mr. Underwood, the officers looked over the car and then drove to the laundromat. They checked inside and searched around the parking lot and found nothing that would indicate a crime scene. The officers then contacted Betty's daughter and boyfriend and told them to call the police department if they heard anything about her whereabouts or if she returned home. The next day, January 2nd, Betty's mother and sisters visited the police station to ask about Betty's case and to learn what they were doing to find her. Her family shared that they had contacted the Ohio Highway Patrol, who hadn't received any teletype or information about Betty's disappearance. They were adamant that something terrible had happened to Betty and that she didn't simply walk away from her six children, her loved ones, and her life. They presented a photo of Betty, which the officer copied, and which the family also planned to take to the local newspaper 
and place a missing persons ad. In the information she provided to the authorities, Betty's mom gave a detailed description of her daughter. Red hair, green eyes, 42 years old, a full set of dentures, scarred from the navel down, and wearing a brown suede coat, dark slacks, and loafers with a fringe on top of each shoe. And, as only a mother might do, she described her lovely daughter as having deep dimples in both cheeks and said she was wearing a mother's ring with six stones in it and an engagement ring with a large diamond in its center. Mrs. Edmiston also reminded the officers that she knew they were quite familiar with Betty because she had been arrested before on charges of failure to comply, intoxication, disorderly conduct, and unpaid parking tickets. This concerned mother wanted to make it very clear that she expected the authorities to take her daughter's case just as seriously as they would that of anyone else. Sadly, it didn't appear that that would be the case. Finally, on January 3rd, three days after Betty was reported missing, the authorities released a teletype message to other local law enforcement agencies. Although the initial missing persons complaint from three days earlier stated that the teletype message was already sent out. Later that day, an officer contacted Betty's employer to see if anyone there had heard from her or if she had returned to work. The owner of the establishment shared that Betty would never miss work without notifying her, but that Betty had a cold when she last saw her and said that Betty wasn't feeling too well. Before the interview ended, the woman added that Betty often joked about moving to Arizona. The next few days were a flurry of gathering information, interviewing barmaids at the establishments Betty used to frequent, and following up on tips that were phoned in. As the local authorities tracked down leads as to Betty's whereabouts and followed clues as to what might have happened to her. Did they already know? Had they seen this same type of crime before? Would Betty ever be found? Watered down women with diluted dreams are home for joy has been washed down the stream. Grab a shovel and join me each Monday as we dig a little deeper and uncover the tragedies of watered-down women. Weekend in light While searching for love No pain in this world With no help from above